everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the UBC Focus podcast. I'm Nicole Doucette, and I'll be bringing you research highlights from UBC's Faculty of Science every quarter. If you prefer reading rather than listening, you can head over to focus.science.ubc.ca to read all of the articles for this issue, which are all about flight, from bees and birds to satellites and drones. One of our featured researchers is Dr. Allison McAfee, a postdoctoral fellow at both UBC and North Carolina State University. She's researching honeybee fertility. And Allison, alongside beekeeper Emily Huckster, are spearheading a new way to keep hives cool during heat waves. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. When I was doing research for this interview, I was also learning lots of stuff about queen bees, and I had no idea that apparently they mate one time and then store all the sperm and then just like produce eggs for three to five years. Yeah, that it's pretty amazing when you think about it. It's uh, it's like they get about just like one week when they can go out and mate with all the drones that they can find, and then that's it for the rest of their life. So my favorite honeybee fact is that queens store all that sperm that they acquire during their mating period in this very specialized organ called a spermatheca. She can control whether she fertilizes an egg or not because she has this little tiny pump that releases fluid from the spermatheca onto the egg as it's passing through her oviduct. So she can actually like walk around like a honeycomb and kind of feel how big the cell is. And then if it's a really big cell, then she'll decide to not fertilize the egg. And if it's a small cell, then she'll usually decide to fertilize the egg. And uh, the reason why that's important is because the unfertilized eggs develop into drone honeybees, which are the males, and they need a bigger cell to develop in. And the fertilized eggs develop into workers, which are the females, and they need a smaller cell. I think that's my favorite fact. (laughs) That's a good favorite fact. (laughs) In the summer of 2021, BC's heat dome became the deadliest weather event in Canadian history. And Allison and Emily observed it had profound impacts on bees as well. After the event, Emily went out to check on her hives. What she saw that was pretty alarming to me was that um, when she went out into her apiary, she saw these dead drones kind of littered on the ground or on the lids of her hives. But this observation by Emily uh, really showed that out in the environment, in the kinds of weather events that we're experiencing now, that this might actually be a a real problem in beekeeping operations. If it's getting so hot that the drones are dying, then that is worrying for a queen producer because she only gets that one period. Emily also noticed queen bee mating success appeared to be lower, and other beekeepers reported lower survival rates of small starter colonies called nukes. Yeah, so after... Emily told me what she saw in the apiary. Then we kind of teamed up to try to see if there were things that we could do to help keep the colonies cool. The two things that we decided to test were a, just a very simple like styrofoam cover on top of the colony. So uh, we just put, well, I say we, but actually Emily is the one who physically did this experiment. She took 
two inch styrofoam and just placed it on the lids of these colonies. And uh, the other thing that she tested was feeding a very light syrup. And the reason for that is because bees will normally go and try to forage on water and evaporate it to cool down the colony the same way that we produce sweat to cool down our bodies. And uh, by having some sugar in there, she figured it might really encourage them to take it down and then try to evaporate it. On her end, Allison programmed some temperature loggers. And when there was a second heat wave in the forecast, Allison shipped the loggers to Emily to put in her hives. Yeah, the results were pretty clear. So the styrofoam lid actually had a pretty strong effect. The like average daily high spike that we saw during the day across this 12-day period was 3.8 degrees lower than in the control hives. And that might not seem like a huge difference, but if you think about uh, like if you see a 33 degree day in the forecast, if you think about going out in that, it's like, yeah, it's hot, but, you know, it's probably tolerable for most people. But if you see almost 37 degrees in the forecast, then you're like, oh, man, that is that is sweltering. <laughs> so, yeah, the styrofoam looked like it was it was pretty effective and the syrup, not so much. It decreased the average daily high by just over one degree and it wasn't quite significant but what i really want to test in the future is combining these methods in the future allison hopes to work with emily to test both methods together the sugar syrup and the styrofoam lids to understand how these solutions may work in conjunction with each other with changing climates and hotter weather events anticipated year after year the need to protect our honeybees is more urgent than ever before our honeybees help pollinate a massive amount of the agriculture we consume. The estimated economic contribution of honeybees is around 4 to $5.5 billion a year just in Canada, and that's mainly due to pollination for crops such as canola, apples, blueberries, cranberries, and soybeans. If you want to learn more about Dr. Allison McAfee's research, you can check out her website, which is at www.allison, spelled with one L, McAfee, m-c-a-f-e-e blogs.wordpress.com. This is also in the show notes, so you can find it there. Thank you for having me. And it was really great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Joining me now is UBC alumni, Kobe Michaels, who's here to tell us about more exciting research from UBC Science. Welcome, Kobe. Thank you for having me. I want to start with kind of a, a weird request. Um, I just sent you a picture. Can you describe the picture and tell me what you think the picture is of? It looks like a very beautiful canyon, maybe somewhere in Utah. There's big mountains. I can see lots of trees. There's a lot of red rock. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's a nice scenery shot. Right. And so without without like any sort of signs or anything, you can see that there's like a trail. You can see that it's a big canyon. Yes. All that stuff, Yeah, it right? looks like a nice spot for hiking. Yeah. Well, it's actually a hiking trail in the Grand Canyon called the Bright Angel Trail. Um, and that was pretty easy for you, right? Like you were able to figure that out, no problem. You know, it doesn't seem impressive that you could look at a picture of a canyon and tell me it's a canyon. But when you think about what's going on behind the scenes in your brain and your eyes, it actually is pretty impressive because you're looking at a two-dimensional representation, right? Like a photo is two dimensions um, of a 3D space. And you had to have knowledge about what canyons are, what they look like. You know, you, you knew the rocks were from the U.S. because of the color and the texture. 
all of that stuff, you actually needed a lot of knowledge. So you can imagine if you were a, let's say, autonomous robot or a drone, and you had a camera for eyes, you'd actually have to have a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill to be able to take that picture of the Grand Canyon and only recognize what it is and where the walls are, but also how to move around in that space. And that's the key to the research behind our next story. Okay, cool. Tell me about it. Well, imagine you're an autonomous robot, like a self-driving car or a drone. And the only way you have to interact with the world is with 2D images from the camera that, that basically acts as your eyes. And you have to use those cameras to navigate around a three-dimensional world. So Dr. Quan Mu Yi uh, is a computer scientist at UBC who studies computer vision and visual geometry. Uh, he basically helps computers understand how to see their environment and interact with it so that autonomous robots uh, like self-driving cars or drones can get around uh, using visual information. That's crazy. How do, how do these algorithms actually work? How do they learn how to see something? Yeah, so, so basically what, what Dr. Yi is using, he's using a kind of artificial intelligence AI called machine learning to train the computers. So one thing that they can do is they can find a famous place, like, for example, the Grand Canyon, that has lots and lots and lots of pictures taken of it. And they can feed all of those pictures into these algorithms. And by showing that the computer can find similarities and their physical interpretation of the space can actually increase in accuracy by 40 to 50%. The other thing they can also do is they can create a very carefully controlled 3D environment in a lab and train the algorithms using that because they know exactly where everything is and they can see if the computer is right. Okay, but don't we already have, you know, like self-driving cars and drones with obstacle detection and all that sort of stuff? It's mostly true that we have self-driving cars and autonomously flying drones, but none of them are truly fully autonomous. They need some sort of human help to get along. Um, but the other main difference between Dr. Yi's work and what's currently out there is um, this technology is supposed to work uh, what Dr. Yi calls in the wild. Basically, it's a method that should work with any camera and any weather in any place. You don't need a specific technology or sensor like a lot of the current self-driving cars or drones have. Um, this will work with any camera. So it's, it's a computer software that basically any autonomous robot could have downloaded um, and it should work. So that's the main difference there. So how far away do you think we are from fully autonomous drones? Yeah, the, the answer is we're pretty close. At this point, the technology isn't really the limiting factor. We kind of have the know-how and the technology to, to, to get there. It's just a matter of time. Um, and it's a really busy field, so there's a lot going on. But what is sort of the limiting factor at this point are a lot of questions about legality and ethics around autonomous vehicles. So for example, if a drone that's flying itself crashes and hurts somebody, who's going to be held responsible? And those questions can be really hard to answer, maybe even harder at this point than building the technology. So if the drone story is all about avoiding things, our next story is all about flying into things. So we're going from drones avoiding canyon walls to birds avoiding windows. Have you ever been sitting by your window and all of a sudden you hear a loud thud? Yeah. And you look over and there's, there's a bird who's hit the window? Yeah. Exactly. So that's called a bird strike. Um, and it's long been assumed that bird strikes are mostly happening during the summer breeding season. But some researchers and students at UBC wanted to study how often it was happening over the winter. And what they found was there were still a lot of birds flying into windows. Oh, geez. Like how many birds? So the team looked at eight random buildings across UBC's campus and found 152 birds had died in just over seven months. 
But when you take that data and you estimate it across the entire UBC campus, that's over 10,000 birds a year. And if you take similar estimates and expand that across the entire country, we're looking at about 40 million birds a year dying from hitting windows. Oh my goodness. Okay. I mean, like if there's that many birds that are striking windows and potentially dying or getting injured, is there anything we can do to help them out? Well, totally. And that's the second half to this story and the second half to this study. So um, the basic problem with birds hitting windows is that they see the reflection and they can't tell it as different from sky or trees. But what does help them is creating visual noise on the windows so that they don't think they can fly through it. So it has to be dense. Um, so you can go out and buy commercial bird protection films for your windows and just stick that on. Or you can be a little more creative like UBC has. So for example, the UBC bookstore has literary quotes on its windows. And the Botanical Garden has created these really beautiful illustrations of birds that are commonly found to hit windows, like varied thrushes and spotted towhees. Those pieces of art are dense enough that the birds don't think they can fly through the window. So if we're covering a few windows at a, at a few buildings, if just some people do it, but not all, is this going to make a pretty significant difference in terms of bird strikes and the amount we're seeing? So since 2022, it's been mandatory for all new academic buildings on UBC's campus to have bird protection, and all new residential buildings by 2025 will also be required to have uh, pr protective films. And this is totally something you can do at your home too to help protect birds in your neighborhood. Well, thanks, Kobe, for coming on and sharing some of the other highlights from this quarter's focus issue, which was all about flight. If you'd like to read the other articles, you can find them at focus.science.ubc.ca. Be sure to follow the UBC Faculty of Science on their social media channels and Medium so you can get all the latest updates for future issues. Once again, I'm Nicole Doucette, and thanks to Dr. Allison McAfee and Kobe Michaels for participating in our very first episode of the UBC Focus podcast. We'll catch you in a few months, and thanks for listening. Thank you.